welcome to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. And thanks for joining us this week on Inside the IC. In today's episode, we'll hear from Robert Cardillo, the former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. He retired in 2019 after more than 35 years in the intelligence community. He's now chairman of the board of the United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation, chairman of the board at Planet Federal, and president of the Cardillo Group. In today's conversation, we'll hear his views on the balance between security and privacy in our increasingly digital, data-filled world. Robert, you recently authored a chapter in Studies for Intelligence, a quarterly journal produced by the CIA, titled GeoInt in the Post-Secret World, Who Guards the Guards? And you write about how we are fast approaching a time in which technology will enable a continuous sensing of all the world's activities. And you acknowledge there are obviously benefits for issues like disaster preparedness and real-time detection of bad actors, but it also demands a major rethinking of privacy. And we'll post a link to the article on our website at federalnewsnetwork.com, of course, I was wondering if you could just take me into the motivations for writing this article, and why do you think it's important in particular for the intelligence community to be considering these issues? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Justin. I enjoy interacting and discussing critical issues about our community, but but as, as the article points out, I'm very interested in how our community interacts with those that we serve. And even though we don't serve, you know, the public directly, I feel strongly that they really are our indirect customer, the end user, if you will, of enhanced and improved decisions by those that are in positions of authority to create improved security or improved awareness or improved, you know, society uh, writ large. So the the reason I drafted this article was it was a summation of my career in two ways. One, I was kind of born into the imagery business. We now call it geospatial. I was a photographic interpreter and imagery analyst back in the day when the government was literally a monopolistic owner of that space. We could do things that no one else could do. We had access to the space that no one else had. And so much of our advantage in those days was through you know, unique technology and unique budgets, et cetera. And my experience in my government career was I lived through the not 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 that that completely dissipated, but the the drawing down of that, you know, hey, it's only a government game and the rise of commercial technology and capabilities. And then when I was when I was in the White House working for DNI Clapper in uh, 2010 to 2014, we were we experienced the results of the of the Snowden uh, releases. And now he was focused on signals intelligence and predominantly the work of you know, the National Security Agency. But I, I can imagine a day, as I said in the article, about a time when the kind of persistence that we've either come to live with or not live, we're trying to figure out to live with with our phones and with our apps and with, you know, GPS technology. I think we're going to have to have that conversation about sensing. And I purposefully didn't say remote sensing because I think some of the sensing will be direct, whether you're, you know, on the corner of a major metropolitan area or walking in front of a business with a CCTV camera, et cetera, or 
being sensed from space. And and I just it was my view that I would prefer to have this conversation uh, between the citizens that are proposed to be protected by those capabilities. And how does that align? How does that balance? How does that interact with what also makes us American, which is valuing privacy, individual liberty, et cetera? You know, you know, when we go to bed at night, we go to bed at night, you know, and put our head down on our pillow with the kind of the sense of security. Oh, good. You know, my my I'm I'm protected in my home or in my community, et cetera, from from uh, from bad actors and and forces. And and I thank the government writ large for doing that. Right. That's part of the deal I make with the government. And then you wake up in the morning and you go, well, uh, I'm not sure how much I want that government involved in my life. Right. So we've got these tension in our society. Right. That isn't new. And I just through the article wanted to kind of maybe lead the discussion before it was a crisis, you know, before we, we had some aha moment in which we were kind of uh, find ourselves in a corner of a debate in Washington. And, and an old mentor of mine told me one time, he said, look, if you're explaining in Washington, you're losing. Meaning if you're, you know, if you're, if you're justifying something after the fact, it's very hard to do it. So the point of the article was let's, let's start the conversation now. Sure. And, and, you know, as you point out, the, the Snowden leaks were eight years ago now, over, over eight years ago now, and this is not an entirely new issue, but it's one that's constantly been evolving. What do you think intelligence professionals bring to this debate? Because on the face of it, you would think that, hey, more data out there uh, about a whole range of, of different activities is, is probably something that as an intelligence community professional, you'd be pretty happy to see. But on the privacy front, what, what interest do you think the IC has in, in that issue? And, and what kind of perspective do you think professionals like yourself bring to this this privacy debate, which is, is a very broad debate that's happening across government and, and U.S. society and, and the globe as a whole? Well, I guess I come to it from a from a core belief that there's really one reason why governments, and we're talking about you know, liberal democracies, lowercase d, and, and, you know, in our case, create intelligence services. And and my view is they're created to really do one thing, to enable better decision-making, right? And and they do that through myriad ways, right? You provide a, a bit of data they didn't know, or you contextualize it away, or you frame it, or you assess it, or you project it, or you forecast it, all those things that the intelligence community does so that a decision maker can say, oh, okay, I, I better understand my choices here, and I'm going to now do A versus B. And again, that decision maker sometimes is in a suit, and sometimes in a uniform, and sometimes that uniform's military, or it's first responder, et cetera. There's many different layers of people that consume it. But all of those officials, all of those decision makers are representative of those who sent them there in one way, shape or form. And in our society, that's the electoral process and, you know, that's our governance. And and so they're there to serve those citizens. And that's why I feel like the now don't get me wrong. I don't think the IC, the intelligence community should be leading this discussion. I think for two reasons. One, I think I think we're a supporter and I think we're good at supporting. And two, look, I think that there's probably I mean, you know, there, there's just baggage here. And and by the way, you can replace baggage with bias. 
we all have it. We all carry it with us. It, it's it's natural for humans to have a bias because of you know where they come from and how they you know the way they learned and and their life experiences. All that goes into performance. So I think in our society, the intelligence community should be a supporter of this conversation. You know, if Robert were in charge, you know, really, it should be our elected officials that should be leading this conversation. I realize that it's it's harder these days to think about sober-minded, you know, rational debates about big policy issues. We seem to be less good at that these days. But anyway, back to your question, I still think it's the IC's responsibility to, if not lead the conversation, at least promote it or provoke it uh, in a constructive way. And again, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying things would have been different, you know, at the end of the day, given the Snowden leaks. But I do believe that like post 9-11, right, we, you know, America had been attacked in a way it hadn't been since 1940 way in 41. And obviously in, in many ways, a way it had never been attacked before. Country was reeling, was looking for leadership, was looking for a sense of, OK, where do we go from here? Now, this is hindsight 2020, so feel free to critique it. But but I could imagine in such an environment, I wonder if we couldn't have gone to the American people in 2001 and two and say, look, it's a really different planet than the one that existed two months ago, given what, what's happened. And the threat is quite different than the one that we had prepared for. And we propose a different level of balance between individual liberty, privacy, and security, right? And this means that if we're going to protect ourselves from the next attack or from a non-state actor, as we did on 9-11, we're just going to need different authorities. Now, that debate happened. I wasn't part of it, but that happened in secret, okay? It happened within government circles. And and look, I'm not second-guessing those people's decisions or, or their assumptions they made. I'm just saying that now... We are here in 2022. The, the digitization of the world has done nothing but accelerate, right? The constant ability to fully track movement and activity around our planet just goes up almost every day. I think it's time for you know a, a new conversation about that that overall balance. And you know, finish with this. Maybe maybe because it is hard to have and risky to have, right, if you're an elected official, to have this conversation, because probably by definition, you will annoy 42% of our population, depending which way you come out on that. You know, it's probably easier to, you know, kick that can. And and I'm just in the article arguing that maybe we, we can't afford to kick it anymore. And again, we're speaking with Robert Cardillo, former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. We're going to take a short break, but we'll continue our conversation when we come back. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Inside the IC. We're speaking with Robert Cardillo, former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, about his recent article, GeoInt in the Post-Secret World. In the article, you also raised the concept of geospatial singularity, kind of what we were talking about earlier, where where real-time Earth observations with analytics are available to anyone. A range of different services that used to be the exclusive realm of intelligence agencies. And I'm wondering, how do you think the IC, and in particular your old agency, NGA, is grappling with this new reality? So first, I want to, again, pay tribute to Joseph Kohler, friend and colleague who 
at least to my knowledge, coined the phrase with a paper that he, he had written. And, and I really like it, one, because it's kind of very descriptive. It's also, it's a bit of a attention grabbing, you know, singularity sounds a little scary, right? <laughs> and which I like. So I like the, the fact that Joseph was able to kind of uh, capture both of those things. It's interesting when you bring in NGA, you know, my home agency and where I was born and raised and, and led and the privilege to lead from 14 to 19. I mean, it's a big organization, so I'm going to be, you know, synthesizing kind of the debates as I saw them and understand them. But it's fundamentally this, you know, NGA is, is both a member of the intelligence community. So it sits it works for the director of national intelligence, but it's also a combat support agency which means it's got responsibilities to the Department of Defense. Now, by the way, uh, the National Security Agency has a similar kind of straddle, and so does the National Reconnaissance Office, uh, Defense Intelligence Agency. So the NGA is not unique, but I say that to say that it's got its own balance uh, challenge because it has a mission to advance and improve decisions, as I said at the top. But the way NGA has done that historically is to illuminate expose and document adversarial capabilities, and when it can, infer intentions on top of those capabilities. So such and such a country, North Korea is an easy one to pick, right? Has uh, this and that system and this and that unit and these deployments. And to me, that's, I call that the content that is necessary to join the game, but it's also the context, meaning it's the frame of reference so you can understand those physical capabilities. The real hard part of of being a geospatial intelligence officer it isn't isn't the what and where question. And we can come back to this. Computers are getting much better at that, you know, identifying objects and locating those objects. The really hard question and the one that the decision makers needs most is the why question and the what's next question. And at least today, computers are not so good at those. Who knows where we'll go with you know, computer evolutions and the move to true AI. But uh, one of the debates at NGA has to do with that, I won't call it a divide, but the tension between those two. And I was very supportive of pushing as much as we possibly could on the what and where to computer assisted. I, I called it augmentation and automation. I tried to stay away from artificial intelligence just because it's just such a loaded term and it and it means so many different things to different people. But things like computer vision is pretty straightforward and you know object identification. I mean computers just are getting better and better at it. I wanted to take the NGA analysts and and not eliminate them but elevate them. So take them above those questions. Let the computer do the what and where, you do the why and what's next. And look, like I said it's a big organization. Some people that resonated with them, that was, you know, kind of motivated them to move to those higher level questions. Some felt threatened by the computer, like, wait a minute, they're going to come in and do my job, then what are you going to do with me? And I kept telling them those other two questions is what I'm going to do with you. But I won't kid you, there was a tension. And, and to be frank, you know, with respect to my article, that is not a big debate at NGA, okay? Because for two reasons. One, NGA has got a mission to do, and they do it. And two, they are prohibited from applying their capabilities against the U.S., right? So it's just, hey, we don't, we don't do that. And we don't. Now, we can support activities in the U.S., for example, floods, fires, et cetera. But there's a very meticulous legal process by which we go through to support the FBI or FEMA or California Fire, whoever it is, to make sure that 
we can't and don't do anything against American citizenry. So for that reason, NGA isn't, there isn't an active debate inside there, but I, people shouldn't worry about that. There, there, quite frankly, there shouldn't be. It's very clean there. But now that I'm in the commercial world, you know, and working with both, you know, satellite providers and data analytics companies and computer vision applications, they can and should and do wrestle with it quite often because frankly, look, that's going to be a different terms of use, right, than the Starbucks and Home Depot, right, if you sign on to that service. And I think there's a lot to be learned from the kind of communications and signals analogies, both good and bad. But again, my, you know, if I had a single intent, it was like, let's get on with the debate, even if we're not quite sure how to have it yet. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because beyond just pure political dysfunction, one of the big things holding back some sort of big push to reform privacy laws is commercial companies who are able to use this data and whose value is derived from gathering all of this data from us. So, you know, you brought it up now that you've been out for two years and working with a lot of at least geospatial companies and the like. What are the debates within those companies? How far do you think they're willing to go in allowing for, not allowing for, but backing privacy debate? And where do they draw the red lines in your view? You should always get a little nervous when an intelligence officer begins his answer with, it depends, but it does depend. So I'm going to talk you through a couple of depends. You know, in my in my new world, I work with some, you know, I'm just going to call them traditional defense intelligence or defense industrial partners. The audience, uh, you can you can think of them, you know, the big primes, the big, you know, movers, the big industrial giants for, that, quite frankly, have served this nation very well with their capabilities and their services. For good and for bad, I have found them to be very government-like uh, when I came out. Now, I don't think that should be a surprise because, quite frankly, the government kind of created them, right? It kind of said, look, we need somebody to build a whole lot of airplanes really fast or tanks or rockets or whatnot. They need to have all these protections. They need to have all these capabilities. And so the bureaucracy that the government had just kind of got, went over to the those, those kind of corporate giants. And then, you know, you've got uh, kind of a middle tier of companies that um, they're not startups. They're not, you know, um, um, you know, fresh out of uh, uh, MIT or Stanford. But they haven't yet scaled in a way that provides their service broadly across the community. So perhaps, you know, they're an Air Force partner or a Space Force or a defense intelligence agency partner, for example, but but it's but it's relatively bespoke. And so it's a pretty narrow piece. And then the third category is, you know, some startups and some new companies that at least it's been my experience are having much more of the debate. And, you know, one case in point, you know, I I chair the board of it's called Planet Federal. So Planet is a small satellite company that provides remote sensing services around the planet. And has for a number of years, they have a subsidiary that does their federal business, and that's where I sit. I guess what I found interesting in my experience at Planet is there's one part of their history and their ethos, and the fact that they recently went public, so they're now a publicly traded company, but they went public as a public benefit corporation, 
which is a very particular way to to be a public company. And you, and you still have all the fiduciary responsibilities to your shareholders to maximize return on investment. But you also are obliged to adhere to some high-level goals for broader public benefit. And it's it's not a new construct, but it's it's becoming more in vogue these days because I think people are wanting to have the debate about and especially a company like Planet, which they can actually see the whole globe once a day. Now, they see it at pretty gross resolution, so people shouldn't be worried about them tracking license plates, et cetera. But I also, you know, you shouldn't think of any of that sensing capability in isolation because, and this was especially true in the intelligence community, there was almost never an answer that was worthwhile that came from a single source. It's multiple sources coming together to tell a story. And again, speaking about my experience with Planet, they're well aware that, okay, it would be difficult for us to imagine abuse of our imaging, just given its resolution and periodicity and the spectral range. However, we could imagine if somebody were to combine our imagery with some sort of mobile device tracking element and, you know, watching that over time to develop patterns of activity and inferring information and and you know, if, if it was an authoritarian government, could they use that information in a way to control the population that doesn't comport with our values? Okay, that's a debate that happens within Planet, and they go through those use cases and they and they put language into their contracts that talk about you know international law and the adherence to you know respect for civil liberties, etc. Now, none of those are airtight, of course, right? The world is a messy place. But I use them as an example that I certainly see and, and experience more of those debates, at, quite frankly, at the commercial world. And, and let's face it, I mean, this again, I wasn't involved in this, but if, if you recall one of the shooting events in California and the alleged perpetrator had an iPhone, and I remember the FBI wanted to get into the iPhone, but he had, the perpetrator had put a code on it, you know, the four-digit or six-digit code. And I remember that battle between FBI and Apple, and Apple said no. Uh, I don't recall how it ended up turning out, whether a court ordered it to turn it over or whatnot. And by the way, I don't work for Apple, so this is not a commercial, but I'm sympathetic with the point of view because remember what I said earlier that I was willing to hit yes on Starbucks because I trusted them. Obviously, if, if, if I'm going to buy an Apple product or service at some level, I'm going to have to trust them to keep my data. In this case, remember I talked about, well, what happens when the government shows up? Well, guess what? The government showed up and said, I want into that data. And again, I guess that's another good example of let's not wait for that to happen in extremis, right? The quote ticking time bomb scenario or, you know, we're trying to solve a crime here. You know, let's let's posit those potential outcomes now so that we at least we can have a, you know, at least a more civilized uh, debate before, you know, where emotions are high and tensions are strong. Yeah. And, and as you point out, these decisions are being made uh, for us by by companies, regardless of whether we acknowledge it or, or know it or not. Yeah. But w what do you hope happens here in the near term to drive this debate forward? What, what are you looking out for? If I can dream for a minute, I will. I mean, look, I would love something, in, you know, open hearings at the congressional level, meaning and, and again, I'm not sure it should be the intelligence communities, uh, committees because of what I said earlier about kind of that baggage that comes. I think they should be present at these uh, these uh, hearings. And, and maybe they're not even hearings. Maybe they're more like town halls. And, and 
again, I'm going to be a little theatrical here. I don't think they should be in Washington. I, 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 you know, we should go to Des Moines, you know, we should go to Peoria, we should go to Gainesville, Florida, wherever, you know, to, like I said, because again, you're going to think I've got rose colored contacts on here. Ultimately, I believe that the strength of our government is critically tied to the confidence from the governed, meaning that level of confidence that those those of us that are putting our head down at night, you know, are going, yep, I'm good. I feel safe. I feel secure. I feel et cetera. You know, it's a monstrous topic. I get it. And so I can I, I appreciate why people want to avoid it or easy to say we'll do it next year. But what I'd like to see is is to have it elevated. And I like the idea of congressional engagement because, you know, direct representation of the people and they don't really have a dog in the fight with respect to running the IC. I mean, they oversee it, they fund it, they appropriate it, et cetera, et cetera, but they don't run it. And so you'd have some distance there too. Now, if I kind of come back to reality and go, well, that's probably not going to happen in today's political environment. We've got a lot of other things going on and whatnot. I do think that there are, you know, some government officials that, that could take this on, take on as in, you know, lead this discussion or debate, you know, perhaps it can come from justice uh, in the sense that this is a, this is an equation between the liberty, privacy, and security, and they deal with this a lot. Again, I, I imagine the director of national intelligence or his or her, in this case, her rep, her representative kind of being on the wing of that discussion, not being up, up front. And I think somebody from the Pentagon should be involved too, because there's so much interplay between security and intelligence, which is, you know, fully appropriate. But even the, you know, even, you know, even of late, we've seen the, I'll say the fraying of the edges around what are we defending? You know, I mean, is it just nation states? Are there internal threats that need to be dealt with? Are there fringe elements, you know, from either side of the political spectrum, et cetera? And by the way, the, the, the government can, you know, do these things through some third parties. You know, there's think tanks that can host these, you know, with the right officials. You have federally funded research and development companies such as, you know, MITRE and Aerospace that can help do that. So I do think there's ways to do that probably at the executive level where you could bring maybe a hybrid approach. Is there anything else that you're looking out for beyond the pure governance realm as part of, you know, broader civil society, perhaps? I do. And I'm going to frame it large and then come small. So one, again, I've had a lot of experience in sensing and remote sensing. I, I have more experience now in the commercial world, and I'm quite excited about the the upside of this capability, the benefits to improved agriculture and supply chain and transportation, et cetera. But I also appreciate that at the end of the day, oh, uh, let me add to that. I also believe that that increased general awareness can provide a shared perspective and can allow citizenry writ large to be better. Meaning, I can be a better member of my neighborhood if I have more knowledge about it. I can be a better, you know, constituent, you know, with respect to city council or local governance if I'm more aware, which might lead to involvement. Believing that, I also think that there is an individual component to this. I realize that that this will take many people, but but frankly, it's up to each of us. I guess my lecture to myself is stop scrolling immediately to the bottom, right? You know, 
take a pause and at least Google out there and find out, hey, anybody had any issues with the Starbucks? Ter-? And I'm not, I apologize for picking on Starbucks today. Okay, Dunkin' Donuts, let's go to them for a minute. Anybody have any issue with, tar- you know, Dunkin' Donuts terms of service? And, and you know somebody out there, uh, somebody, some grad student has read it and written a paper on it and whatnot. Look, it, it, I, think it's, I think it's part of being a responsible citizen these days that part of our responsibility is to be as informed as we can. And remember what I said about the remote sensing revolution. I think that's going to allow us to be more informed, which is good. It's going to allow us to know things that only the government knew before. That's good to share that. But we have to turn that into you know, benefit, into goodness. And the only way to do it is if we use it. And so my call here is to each of us to just be more mindful of the, the trades that are going on and uh, ask a second question or a third question. And those should include what if scenarios so that when you do click or you do agree or you do vote or you do protest, whatever it is, it's through that additional clarity, that additional awareness, uh, but resolve to what, what I would hope at the end of the day is just being a better citizen. If collectively we can do that, I think that'll strengthen the social compact, which will lead to that trust that I believe strongly is the core of our stability as, as you know, democratic lowercase d institutions. That was Robert Cardillo, former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, speaking about his recent article, GeoInt in a Post-Secret World. You can find the full interview and transcript, as well as a link to his article on federalnewsnetwork.com. I'm Justin Doubleday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.